Jason is passing out an outline. Hopefully uh, you have one. Actually, if you could give one to Barbara there, Jason, in the back, that would be good. She just came in. Anyway, welcome to our next installation in our exposition of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. This will be our 11th study in this, and we'll be looking today at chapter 8. And the title of that chapter is Of Christ, the Mediator. Um, before we begin, I want you to look at the outline that I just ha- I gave this to you when we began our study. But I think it's a helpful way to see how the confession is um, laid out. Uh, the writers of the confession did not come up with this outline. I can't, I can't remember where I got it from. Possibly Dr. Renahan. Um, but I like the way it's laid out. If you notice, there's three main areas, four main areas. And the first is first principles, the scriptures, the doctrine of God, God's nature, God's decree, creation, providence, and sin. So that's sort of like the preliminary principles. And then you come to the covenant. And we began that in our last study when we looked at the uh, of God's covenant. And it's really the covenant of grace being integrated into the confession of faith for probably 13 chapters and the covenant defined, and then the covenant servant, which we'll be looking at today in chapter 8. The covenant setting, which sets forth uh, free will, and, and then covenant blessings of effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, covenant graces, faith and repentance, good works, perseverance, assurance, the means of receiving the covenant, God's law, God's gospel. We'll get to those when we get there. And then God-centered living freedom and boundaries, and the basis of liberty of conscience, um, a large section. We're going to spend a good deal of time on the church. Very, very instruction. The worship of God, very instructed. The worship of God, uh, the practice of worship, the day of worship, the Lord's day, of vows, and then civil government, marriage, and then four chapters on the church. And then the last section is the world to come. And actually, a relatively small section um, as far as the eschatology and the study of end things. And so they're actually relatively brief. Um, and so it talks about the intermediate resurrection states and then finally the last judgment. So I think that's helpful as we jump back into our study here to see where are we at in the scheme of this confession. And we're, we've just begun the covenant and the covenant of grace being inaugurated. And today is it's one of my favorite chapters, and we're not going to cover the whole thing today. I'll warn you. Right now, if you'll turn to chapter 8, is of Christ the mediator. There is so much theology and lessons that can be turned just from these ten paragraphs here. There are themes, there are a multitude of themes, and we'll look at that as we uh, progress on. Now, I only have one extra copy of a confession. I realize probably everybody didn't get one or didn't bring one. So, who needs this? Okay, Barbara? <laughs> well, Bar- maybe Barbara and Barbara could share. So if somebody could take that back there, please. Thank you. And I will have more copies, Lord willing. I wrote a note. I have a few extra copies at home if you never got one or if you need one. Um, very important to have this. This is really what um, the confession of our church, the larger body of confession in addition to our statement of faith. 
So, so far we've seen that man has fallen in Adam. He's utterly sinful. He's completely helpless. There's, There's nothing that he can do. We saw God's covenant of grace, which is God's promise to save a people. And now chapter 8 speaks of the means of reconciliation. We've seen the covenant. Now, how is the covenant going to be implemented? Well, it's through Christ, the mediator. And just by way of review on the covenant, in case you weren't here, and it was uh, two or three months ago, a covenant is a formal agreement between two or more parties. We think of a marriage covenant, and it involves promises, stipulations, and so forth. A covenant in the Bible tells us that redemption originates from God's sovereign activity. Okay, His redemptive activity is unilateral. He imposes his covenant upon us, and man must submit to his saving arrangements. Um, a covenant is a sworn promise, an oath-bound promise. And chapter 7 really shows us that the covenant of grace is the ground of every sinner's salvation. And if there wasn't any covenant of grace, nobody would be saved. Okay? And we saw the necessity of the covenant. We're sinners. The essential character of the covenant. We talked about it's a one-sided covenant. It has as its object sinners. And it demands a response by those sinners. And the covenant of grace is really revealed in the gospel. And it's, it kind of touches on what, what the writers will pick up on in chapter 20. And there, you can get the MP3 on that if you want more information. We talked about where do we fit in? Are we covenantal? Are we fully covenantal? Are we dispensational? Where we believe that God has, that there is not one uh, covenant of grace throughout all the Bible. And we would say we're Reformed Baptists. We recognize the unity of the covenant, so we are covenantal, but that there is some discontinuities as well. And I'm not going to say any more about that. Um, Hebrews says it's a better covenant, a better mediator, a new covenant. There's something different besides the old covenant, okay? Um, But not to the point of being dispensationalist. So today we come to Christ the mediator. What is a mediator? How would you describe a mediator? What is it? A middleman, go-between, very good. What else? Other words? Sort of a peacemaker, okay. He intervenes between the two in order to make peace. Um, He ratifies the covenant, okay. And as we'll see, he's a representative of both sides. So he represents God to us and then represents us to God. So... Um, he, in one sense, a mediator offers some type of guarantee as well. Now, by nature, we are at enmity with God. We are estranged from God. We are sinners in rebellion to God by nature. And, you know, there's teaching today that says God loves everybody. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. And all of that, that, that just flies in the face of the teaching of Holy Scripture. Men by nature do not love God. They don't love his person. They don't love who he is. They don't love his name. They don't love his attributes. In fact, they bristle under the holiness of God, the power of God, the knowledge of God, the omniscience of God. And and it provokes fallen humanity's animosity towards their creator. And so man is at enmity with God. But God has sent a mediator. Jesus Christ bridges the gap between creator and creature. And something that's very important that you're going to see in very quickly is that the 
He had to be fully God and fully man. The incarnation had to take place, and we're going to talk about that. In order to meet God's standards, he had to be 100% man and 100% God. This is necessary. And a mediator is not necessarily an office. It's more of a function, uh, but the offices of mediator are prophet, priest, and king. More themes that you're going to see through this. Now, just by way of, as you look at your confession, you see that there's ten paragraphs, um, very large uh, chapter. The first eight paragraphs, for the most part, mirrors the Savoy Confession and the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's added sentences that the Baptists added here and there, and I'll, I'll highlight those. Um, but for the most part, they're very close. Chapters 9 and 10 are completely added from the Baptists. They're carried over from the 1644 Confession of Faith, the the first London uh, Baptist, and really they came from William Ames um, even earlier on. That's where the Baptists got it early on. And so you'll see it talks about the prophetic office, the priestly office, the kingly office um, there. And so chapters 9 and paragraphs 9 and 10. Um, are added exclusively uh, by the Baptists, and I think they're a great addition to this chapter. And um, as you go through this, I think you'll see as it flows that, that they're really fitting to be there. Um, the various paragraphs of this chapter uh, speak of the person of Christ and then the work of Christ. And you could almost sort of reorder the paragraphs somewhat. Um, paragraphs 2, 3, 7, and 9 speak of the person of Christ, Paragraphs 4, 5, 6, 8, and 10, the work of Christ. Uh, nevertheless, they have it in this order for a reason. So, let's go ahead and look at um, paragraph 1. Now, paragraph 1 is, as I said, it, the first paragraph in most of these chapters is sort of a summary paragraph. So, most of what's going to be laid forth here is at least touched upon in the first paragraph. And it is, it's packed full, and we're going to look at it phrase by phrase. Phrase by phrase, the concept of Christ as mediator is set forth. So who would like to read with a nice loud voice um, paragraph one for us? Tom, can you read it loud? Stand up. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. So you can see there, (laughs) there's a lot that could be said on each and every word, really. We're going to try to take it phrase by phrase of this particular paragraph. First of all, notice the first three words. It pleased God. Those three words tell us that the work of redemption comes from the good pleasure of God. It is his good pleasure um, in Ephesians 1, where it talks about predestination, how he's predestined all things. Three times it talks about the good pleasure of God, for his good pleasure. Secondly, it says in his eternal purpose. Christ's work of mediation was ordained from all the eternity. And that was largely what of God's covenant was telling us, right? 
that there was a covenant of grace made in eternity past that God would save a people. And we saw glimpses of this in the previous chapters and especially in chapter 7. To choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we hear ordain, when we hear the word choose, we think of election in one sense. Um, The Father elected the Son to be the firstborn of all creation. He's the creator of all things. And it's through election that God brings about his plan of redemption. Now, this phrase here, according, let's see, it's right, according to the covenant made between them both, that's added by the Baptists, that little phrase right there. And I think it's good because it connects this to chapter 7, the previous chapter, very clearly. There's a covenant that was made, and this, the, the Christ being the mediator, it's part of the eternal purpose of God, choosing the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both. And it was the covenant was that he would be mediator between God and man. First Timothy chapter two and verse five, we read it. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now let's think for a moment here. Well it goes on and says to be a mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king. And let's stop there. Let's think for a moment about what was the role of a prophet? What was the role of a priest? What was the role of the king in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant? Let's start with prophet. What was was the role of a prophet in the Old Testament? Yes, Joe? Spoke the words of the Lord, right? Often marked by, thus saith the Lord, right? So, authoritatively, directly from God, a spokesman for God, that was the role of a prophet, now, what about a priest? Go before God. So, to be a representative of the people before God. The work of a priest was like a mediator. Offered intercessory prayers for the people and spoke to God on their behalf. And it's interesting, in the New Testament, as we just looked at elder qualifications and we touched on Acts 6 and, and what pastors are to do, there's aspects of prophet, aspects of priest that are now rolled into one New Testament office of minister of the gospel. Now, as far as kings, um, what do you think of when you think of the kings? <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm <laughs> a lot of the kings, were, they weren't good kings, were they? <laughs> but what do you think of, what is a righteous king, what do you think of? Justice, okay. And on what basis? What, what justice? He, he represented... He, the, the kings of Israel were supposed to represent God. A righteous king knows that they're the Lord's representative and ruling the people um, in justice, as Lena said. Uh, he was there to mediate the rule of God to the people, to the people of that society. So that's what the Old Testament... And Paul says that there is only one mediator between God and man. I just read it in in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He's speaking of the par excellence mediator. See, the prophets, the priests, and the kings in some way foreshadowed some type of mediation between God and the people. But they're just dim representations compared to the par excellence, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is utterly unique because he's uniquely qualified. 
This mediator is truly God and truly man, both human and divine nature present with him. Only one mediator is fully qualified to bring about the ultimate goal of mediation. And that is what? The ultimate goal of mediation is what? Our reconciliation and our redemption. And there's only one mediator that's qualified to do that. In fact, it was John Calvin that, as he systematized theology, really, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, that really identified prophet, priest, and king and applied that threefold office to Christ for the first time. So you see the progress of Christian understanding and theology through uh, the centuries. Now we're going to expand on this a little later, but in regards to Jesus Christ, um, he's a prophet. He not only proclaimed the word of God, right, speaking on behalf of the Father, authoritatively speaking himself, but he is the word. In the beginning, the word. Um, let's look at, let me throw out a few verses. Um, who would like Acts 3.22? Okay, Jubal. Hebrews 1.2. Matt? Acts 17, 30, and 31. Jason? And we'll go with that right now. So, Okay, actually I need a Hebrews 5, 5, and 6. Available man. Matt and a lot. And then Psalm 2 and verse 6. One more. Johnny. Okay, so first of all, we're not going to go in that order. Um, I gave you the wrong order there. Christ is a prophet because he proclaimed the word. And he is the word. And what does Acts 3.22 say? Okay, and that's a quote from where? Oh, not, not to you, Jubal, just to the, or unless you know. We should know this. <laughs> Deuteronomy, yes. It's Deuteronomy. And so it's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the Lord will raise up from among you a prophet like me from among your brethren. So there, very specifically, it's being prophesied that, that Christ would be the prophet, and he is the prophet. And now, let's look at... Well, the idea of priest in Hebrews 5, 5 to 6. Who had that? Okay. So he is a high priest forever. Now, the Old Testament priest, uh, what happened there? Was there only one Old Testament priest? Many, 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 many. There was a successor, right? They were always succeeded by someone else and succeeded, but there is no successor. The Lord Jesus Christ is the last priest. He is sacrifice and offering. He is the object of priesthood. And all the priests in the Old Testament all just foreshadowed and, and pointed to the final priest, the high priest who we have forever, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a sense in which Christ is king as well. And let's look at Psalm 2 and verse 6. Right, and that's um, the psalm that Brother Steve made reference to earlier in his prayer uh, that speaks of Christ's reign is forever. The verses at the end of that psalm actually are quoted 
I can't think of which of the seven churches it is now, but that's one of the problems. You shall rule with an, a rod of iron with him. Yeah, it's one of the middle churches there. But So the, the, the kingly reign of Christ, the, the reign of historical kings are limited. Read the kings. Read um, first and second kings, first and second chronicles. You see this king, and then this king passed off. Then there was the, the successor and so forth. Christ is the final king. He remains a king forever. And other verses uh, could be quoted to support that. Now, any questions so far? We've just looked at the first line so far of paragraph one. Okay, let's, let's move on. In all of these mediatorial offices, Christ is the perfect mediator. He is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. The Father has established each office for our redemption. Now, as we continue looking here in the paragraph itself, it says, speaking of the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of the church. Now, this means a lot more than just he founded the church, that the church belongs to him. It means more than that. Let's read Ephesians 1 and verse 22 and 23, whoever has that. Somebody took that. Okay, I'll read it. 22 and 23 of Ephesians chapter 1 says, He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So again, we see that not only has he founded the church he's the head of the church he's the savior of the church he has all authority over the church he owns the church and it says he has given him head of all things to the church the next phrase that they say here in the confession is heir of all things and let's look at uh hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 whoever has that one Good. Thank you, Matt. And, you know, by the way, Hebrews chapter one is really important. It's packed full of um, the deity of Christ, quoting largely from the Psalms. It's very instructive in regards to as we think of Christ and the mediator. I think we're coming back to that chapter later. So he is he's the heir of all things. And uh, very clearly, as the writer says in Hebrews there. And then he says the judge of the world. Now, what verses might you think of? I'm sure you could peek at Acts 17, 30, and 31. Somebody has that. But what other verses might you think of? What other evidence that we have that he is indeed the judge of the world? Romans. Romans, the whole book. <laughs> or if you can think of the, how the verse goes. What else? We'll come back to Romans. <laughs> Revelation. I mean, there's the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb, the conquering Lamb of God. He indeed is judge. He'll judge the world. He comes on a horse, King of kings and Lord of lords. What other verses? Acts 10.42, which says, Very good. So there's another verse. 
And then whoever has Acts 17, go ahead and read that, 30 and 31. So the assurance that we have that Christ will indeed judge is that the Father raised Christ from the dead. That's the assurance. That's the evidence that we have. He indeed is the judge of the world. So when they say here that this is the only begotten Son of God, according to the covenant that was made, to be mediator between God and man, he's prophet, priest, king, head, savior over the church, heir of all things, and judge of the world that's a mouthful. That's an, awesome, that's an awesome description of the Lord Jesus Christ here. Any other comments on the judge, other verses? Judge the world. Yes, Rob? Did you find the Romans? How does it go? Okay, that's. I wonder if that's Romans eight somewhere, but. Um, it's not thirty, and. Um, I do think it's right in that section, though. Who's the one who condemns Christ Jesus died? Yes, was rather raised. It's the right hand of God also intercedes for us. Okay, we'll come back to that. All right, so then the paragraph ends, if you notice here, judge of the world. And now notice, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed. There is a specific people from all eternity given to the mediator to go and to purchase for us. The Redeemer, maybe, might be a better way to say that. And then notice this, and, and, to, and to be by Him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Not only is this a preview of the whole chapter 8, right, of Christ the Mediator, that's actually a preview of the next several chapters, actually in the same order in which they fall. You've got effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, saving faith, etc. So the writers of the confession give this little foretaste of what is to come. And his, this is really the actions of his mediation. He redeems, he calls, he justifies, he sanctifies, and ultimately glorifies. And so this paragraph is an excellent paragraph that summarizes what is to come in the confession. Now, just for you theologians out there, I'll, I'll just throw this out here. Uh, the Latin um, Ordo Salutis talks about the order of salvation. Rob's smiling over there. probably knows where I'm going. But you also have the Pactum Salutis, which is the covenant of redemption made in eternity past. The Historia um, Salutis, which is in history how it unfolds. And then you have the Ordo Salutis as, as how it actually takes place you're called justified sanctified glorified and you see aspects of all three of those in this paragraph alone so it, it's packed full of theology and we could easily spend weeks just on that but because of time we won't this is supposed to be an overview of this and to give you some um, 
uh, bait, as, as it were, to study and to dig deeper. Any questions on paragraph one before we go to paragraph two? Okay, well, let's move on. Paragraph two gives us really the identity of the mediator. And this is a, a very long um, paragraph. And who would like to read this for us? You want to, Steve? Okay. Paragraph two. So what a mouthful that is. <laughs> that is uh, quite a long paragraph. And Steve read that very well. Now, it begins, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. There's an assumption that the, confessional, that the writers of the Confession gives here in that we have already, they have already laid out the doctrine of the Trinity. They've already laid out the doctrine of the second person of the Trinity in chapter 2. So they're picking up from something that's already been set forth. And we mentioned back then that uh, chapter 2 and actually the formulation of the Trinity uh, was helped by the Council of Nicaea, which was in 325 A.D. Some of these uh, ecumenical councils came together to help clarify doctrine in the early centuries of the church. And here we have several themes that we're, we're going to just try to touch on some of these, but we see the pre-incarnate Christ uh, in his glory, or actually I want to begin there, in his deity, rather. And if you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. These are familiar verses, uh, I trust, but it's important to set this forth that Christ had his deity even before he came in the incarnation. In verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see here that the Word was in the beginning, was with God, and the Word was God. And so we see there that the idea of, and we're going to get to this a little bit more in a minute, but the idea that the, the, the Trinity is one essence, but three distinct persons. In 1.14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory the glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So full of grace and truth, the only begotten of the Father, and he has some measure of glory. What is this glory? It's pointing to his deity. If you look at chapter 17, turn over there, where it's abundantly clear here in verse 5. 
Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. There was a measure of glory, full glory, that, that Jesus Christ had before the world ever was. And so, the pre-incarnate Christ was indeed second person of the Holy Trinity and being very an eternal God. And it's really set forth in, in, in three things it says here, and that is the brightness of the Father's glory, one substance in equal with Him, and who made the world. In other words, He is the Creator. So, three phrases or three word groups there, the writers are pointing to the deity of Christ. Now, let's talk about the incarnation, because the mystery of the, this paragraph is really surrounded by the mystery of the incarnation and how he could be 100% man and 100% God, and how those were necessary for him to be the only mediator between God and man. Now, it says here, when the fullness of time had come. Now, as I already read chapter 1 and verse 14 of John, it says the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's speaking of the Incarnation. But turn to Galatians for a minute, chapter 4. Galatians 4. It's good to see these texts in your own copy of the Scriptures. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time came... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under a law. Now, what do you think it means when the fullness of time came? It's at the right time. That's really, yeah, that's right. It was at the exact time, but there's more to it. What else? I'm sorry. The appointed time, sure. Okay, so it, it kind of brings the idea of the incarnation and Christ becoming the mediator and re, actually redeeming a people in the realm of time and space. It puts redemption in the realm of time and history. And God works in history and in time and in space. And this word fullness is a very interesting word in the original Greek. It's not just a glass filled all the way to the rim where if you tapped it, it would drip over but it's like under a faucet where it's just raging, just overflowing. And that's the idea. Is that, that what's, what's being pointed to here, this is the crowning moment of all of history. When the fullness of time came, the, the best time for the most important event of all of history, Christ was bo- is born. The fullness of time came. He was born of a woman, born under a law, sent forth His Son. Now let's look. At a few uh, passages of Scripture, I have uh, another series to look at. So I've got Hebrews 2.14, volunteers. Okay, and then with that, 16 and 17. Okay, Hebrews 4.15, Matt Malott. Romans 9.5, Matt McLean. And... 1 Timothy 2.5, we've already quoted. Okay, and then Philippians 2 will be our last one we'll look at. Um, so let's look at, first of all, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, 16, and 17. Go ahead and read that.
16 and 17. So, a couple aspects there. What did you see in verse 14? What did you see in verse 17? We're talking about the actual incarnation of Christ, which means He took on flesh. He actually came and was born of a woman. What, what, what do we see in these verses to support that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Partook of the same flesh and blood. He had to. Okay, and then verse 17 had to be made like his brethren in all things. Okay, he can't just come and be a substitute if he's really not, if he's not a valid substitute to step in the, in the place and in the stead of his brethren. So he had to be made a man. That's what simply that points to. And yet he had to be Hebrews 4:15. Who's got that? Forgot. Okay, so he, he was without sin is the important thing uh, to note here. So not only did he take on, have to take on flesh and be made like his brethren, he had to be sinless, right, to, to really qualify. And then Romans 9, 5. I think this verse was supposed to be somewhere else, but whoever has that, go ahead and read it. Yeah, I meant to put this verse up in the deity also, but it speaks to both, doesn't it? Because you have the deity of Christ and you have actually Christ taking on flesh, right? The Christ according to the flesh. And it speaks of the deity because he says, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. So very clearly there, this is a great verse to point uh, those who would deny the deity of Christ. Now let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, this is a familiar passage, obviously, as we look here at verse 5 to 8, we see the humiliation of Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, there's a lot of things we could comment on there. Um, or try to keep this brief in regards to this section of Scripture. But we see here that um, he existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not exert his rights, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Again, it says, being made in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of man. He was a real man that humbled himself to the point of death. So we see the humiliation of Christ and his life. But then in verses 9 to 11, it speaks to his exaltation and could somebody read that for us? Verses 9 to 11. Nice and loud. Okay, Jason. Yes.
uh, obviously the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ here. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will indeed confess. You can reject. You can deny. You can suppress now. But you will be made to <laughs> bow down and to confess that he is Lord. So the result of the incarnation really is his full deity, but also his total humanity, yet in one single person. And so we'll look at a few more verses in regards to deity and humanity here. His deity, he has the same attributes, uh, the same attributes that are given to God are said to be true of him. We see his full deity clearly spoken of. Um, and I've already mentioned it too, the idea of, in the paragraph here, of one substance, an equal, right, with God, and then the brightness of the Father, and then He made the world. Okay, that's speaking of His deity, that He is equal with God. And Scripture is very direct. We already looked at John 1 and verse 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, where it was with God. The Word was God. This is God. But in John 20, 28, we have a very clear uh, explanation, which Jesus doesn't say, shh, shh, don't say that. I'll read it for you. It's in regards to Thomas. In 2028, remember this is the uh, appearance and Thomas wasn't there. And then he came, and in verse 27, but he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put your hand on my side. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, and my God. And Jesus said, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. Now, if Jesus was not truly God, he would have rebuked Thomas right there, wouldn't he? He would have said, What are you talking about? God is in heaven, you know, or whatever he would have said. No, he accepts that worship. He is truly God. Romans 9 5, there's the verse, we already read it again, and then back to Hebrews chapter 1. I knew we were going to end up back there. Hebrews chapter 1, if you're following along. Now this is quoting Psalm 45 and, and verse 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. It's actually a series of other verses here. In verse 13, sit at my right hand so I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And other verses could be quoted. So surely the deity of Christ is being set forth in the confession, but also his true humanity. And God's purpose from eternity was fulfilled at the exact time. And the fullness of time came. He took on man's nature with all the essential properties, all the common infirmities, infirmities thereof, and yet was without sin. And speaks of being conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, etc. Now it's interesting. All of this idea of common infirmities, what do you think of when you think of that? Okay, so we okay. What, let's develop that a little bit. What else? Throw. Okay, all of our like physical limitations, mental limitations would would probably all fall into this. That that is, if you shook hands with them, that's not like you know you would just 
see that there's something. This is he's a man. He's a real man. You'd probably feel a callus. You'd shake hands. Um, there was limitations as far as that he would be tired and hungry, thirsty, sensitive to heat, sensitive to cold. All of these physical limitations and even mental of fear and grief. We see him agonizing in his soul, right, in the garden as he's praying, right? Do you remember that in Luke? And can you not watch with me for one hour? And then he prays again, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. But the words that are used there, he became very distressed in his, in his person, are very strong words which speak of mental limitations, mental infirmities, if you will. But all the while, yet without sin. Truly God, truly man, but he truly had these limitations. And yet he was sinless. All the essential properties of human nature and yet without sin. And then Samuel Waldron in his uh, book on this uh, section actually has uh, something I thought was pretty good that I copied down for us to look at. Talking about his humanity and he talks about the different aspects of, in Scripture where it talks about him really being a man, the promise of, the, of a man, the designation of a man. Jesus spoke himself to be a man, uh, the appearance of a man, the body of a man, the soul of a man, and real human limitations. So I want to look at some of these verses as we, as we close up this paragraph. So I'm going to sign out a few verses. Um, Micah 5.2, who would like that? Okay, Joe. Acts 2.22, Jubal, John 8.39.40, Tom, John 4.29, Jason, and there's other verses that could be cited, I'm, I'm just picking one from each one, um, Hebrews 10.5, Matt Malott, Deepu, would you take Matthew 26.36-40, And I think that's, I'll just make reference to these other ones. Okay, so first of all, the promise of a man. Again, this, these, these are from Walder and the way he's broken it down. I think that's it's somewhat helpful. Uh, Genesis 3.15, you see the initial promise, right? That one will come. First promise of a Savior. Uh, Micah 5.2, go ahead. You have the problem. There's a prophecy, really, right, of of the coming of Christ. Isaiah 7:14 could also be cited. Um, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. His name will be called Emmanuel. So, the promise of a man, then the designation of a man. Acts 2:22. So, speaking of the man who will do this, right? And then Acts 17:31, we already read there will be that he, he will be the one to judge. First Timothy 2:5, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So the designation of a man. Thirdly, Jesus spoke of himself as a man. John 8:39 and 40. 
So you seek to kill me a man who has sought to tell the truth. So he, he, he called himself a man. And also, remember, what did he call himself? The son of man, the son of man, the son of, time, son of man. I think 80 times he gives that term to himself throughout his ministry. Fourthly, the appearance of a man, John 4 and verse 29. So, see a man, right? It's, it's a real man. There's other verses in John 18. Um, we're we're going to skip those. The real body of a man, Hebrews 10.5. Who has that? There's a body, and that's quoting from Psalm 40, I believe. It's 40 or 46. Thank you. And then the soul, I've already sort of touched on this, but Matthew 26, um, 36 to 40. So we see there, that's, I've already touched on that, as I said, but the, the reason why Christ had to have emotions and have the, the real mental um, limitations, I guess you will, that, that we do is so that when he's sinless, it really means something. If it didn't really affect him, then, you know, that he's just God, he can go through and, and say no to every sin, that's one thing. But, but he, he's truly man, truly God, he has all the infirmities, as the confession says, that we are accustomed to, yet he was without sin. Um, the various emotions where Jesus wept, um, you know, we see that. And Matthew 4, uh, we see the, the temptation of Christ. And again, I mean, he had to have real limitations for that temptation to mean something, right? For him to come out victorious on the other side. The real human limitations of hunger and thirst, we see that in Matthew 4, um, John 19, um, this was true of him. Now, there were two heresies, this is, this is um, two heresies in the 5th century that the confession speaks against. You're probably wondering, what is this uh, without conversion, composition, and confusion uh, language there? And that's, it's really speaking um, against some heresies that were prevalent in the 5th century, and um, in regards to the two natures of Christ, and I'll mention those just briefly. Um, the uh, Chalcedon uh, Creed and 451 actually um, was when it was another ecumenical council that came forth, and this creed was uh, set forth, and it actually set forth the two natures of Christ, being 100% man and 100% God. But that's in 451 A.D. That's quite a bit later. But the heresies that were going on just years before that, there were two, and the without conversion speaks to the first one, and that's the Eutychian heresy, which said Christ really had one nature, but it was a mixture of divine and a mixture of human together. So that was one of the heresies that were going around. 
The other one I hadn't heard of until this particular study, that one I had, is Nestorius, um, this particular heretic which separated the two natures of Christ to where it was like two separate people. And so the idea that was developed through that creed and, and, and theological thought since then was the true hypostatic union of Christ and that the two natures are really in one person, 100% God and 100% man. And so the confession seeks to um, speak to that when it says so that the two whole, perfect, distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, without composition, without confusion, which being very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So the second paragraph, again, is just absolutely packed full of theology. The words chosen very carefully and communicates well what they're getting across. So any questions on paragraph two? We're going to stop there. We obviously um, are out of time and we're going to pick up Lord willing. I don't think we're going to be able to finish it even next week. So we'll probably look at at least the next three or four paragraphs and probably through six. But who knows? Maybe we'll try to do the whole thing. Um, I still need to do my study on that. Questions? Go ahead. Right, he didn't have that. He was born born of a virgin. No, he was not. But, but in that essence, he was different because he was conceived by what? Holy Spirit, right? And so he's not a son of Adam. So he's so that's what what makes a difference. But he was a real man. He was really born of a woman. Jason, comment. Yeah, that's right. That's what most theologians would would kind of say. Okay. Well, let us have the commitment to be grounded in theology, not only knowing the Word of God, but, but studying good confessions that men. The Westminster Confession took, I think, a year and a half of meetings um, to put together. And very similar, the, the Baptists didn't just you know, throw a bunch of words together and say, this is our confession. I mean, met, hundreds of gifted men came together and chose carefully the words that are set forth to represent the doctrine of what the Holy Bible teaches. But we should study our Bibles first and know them well. And then confessions can be a helpful way, like the outline that I passed out and sort of ordering theology. They're helpful tools, but it's not inspired. So let us remember that. Let us remain humble as we learn. We're going to come to things in our study here that we may not... That maybe we've never heard of, we may not agree with, um, that we're going to have to come with humility to the Scriptures. And what do the Scriptures teach? And be willing to change according to the Scriptures. Um, don't be frustrated if you can't understand everything at once. Um, there's a faulty teacher teaching on the one hand, <laughs> for one thing, and then there's a, uh, it's, it's just hard to understand the deep things of theology instantly. And these things take time. Um, and remember, it's taken 20 centuries for theologians to formulate the teachings of Scripture. Uh, it took 15 centuries for Calvin to really systematize things. Uh, Augustine had done some. Uh, uh, th- there's been attempts through the centuries, but really, you know, that long just to even have it systematized. And then the confessions. And so there's a progression of thought. And so we should come humbly uh, to it. Any final questions? Yes, Tom. 
planting his own special creation in her womb? Because that would indicate that it was conceived outside of her womb. I think they use the language of scripture that it was conceived in the in the Virgin Mary. So but I was saying that the important thing is whether it was simply a creation of God or did he actually use the egg of Mary? I, that's probably I'm not going to comment on that without thinking about that. I think that just gets to the realm of I, I would think the egg. I mean, that's really what what happened there, but um that's uh, something for someone else to answer, I guess. But uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that we could look into these things. We thank you for your word and the truth that is declared therein. Lord, we thank you for even the, our Baptist forebears and the labors that they have gone through in putting together all this confession of faith. We thank you for its richness. We thank you for its soundness. Lord, may we, again, look to Scripture first and foremost, and may we learn as we go through this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.